The Culture Guide Podcast, Episode 7. Today with a special guest from Europe, well, USA, both, you'll find out. Back to the Culture Guy podcast. This is episode seven. We're in March of 2016. And let me turn down the music a little bit here. So this is the show, as you know, those of you who have been listening for a while now. This is a show for people who cross cultures, either for professional reasons or for personal reasons. You study abroad. In either way, you're outside of your native cultural context and you want to hear how other people manage to do this or have been managing to do this. You may want to hear about the science behind it and you may want to hear about other people's experiences. This is the place you want to be at. So today we are talking to Erin Meyer. Um, many of you may be familiar with her since she published a book not too long ago called The Culture Map. Erin is a professor at INSEAD University. It's one of the leading international business schools and she teaches in Paris. Originally she is from Minnesota which the state of the United States that has a place, a dear place in my heart because it was the first place in the United States that I was in contact with. I was a foreign exchange student in, well, way back in the 1980s. And I stayed in Minnesota with a wonderful host family back then in the 1980s. So Erin's also from Minnesota. She's now living in Paris. She'll tell us some more about herself as we go into our interview. And um, she will talk a little bit about her missteps when crossing cultures and what you can do about it and how her concept of the culture map can help you accomplish that. Um, You'll find more about the book online on the website. I'll post all the links to where you can get the book and how her assessment works. So we'll have lots of information for you. First, let's listen to what Erin has to tell us about the culture map. And we're here today with Erin Meyer. Erin, how are you? I'm great. Thanks very much, Christian. Where are you today in the world? I'm in Paris. I'm uh, recording from my home office here. Nice. So Paris has been home for you for how many years now? Well, I've lived here almost 16 years. So I'm from uh, the U.S. originally, as you can tell from my accent. I was raised in Minnesota, but I've spent over 60% of my life living outside of the U.S., living in Southeast Asia and in Southern Africa. And I've been in France now, yes, for quite a long time. 
I'm married to a French person, and my children have just been telling me recently that they are French. So that's when oh. I know it's probably time for another move. Oh, well, as somebody who chose to live in a country outside of my my native country, I've, as most people on this program know, I'm originally from Germany and chose to live in the United States. Um, and I also have children who, well, they now speak better English than they speak German. How are you handling that at home? Do you speak two languages at home or do you settle for French or for English only? No, we actually only speak English at home and I have to say we didn't make a decision about it. That just happened naturally. Okay. I know it's against the advice. The advice is always one parent, one language. But we speak English at home, and our kids speak French at school, and that seems to have worked out. Mm. Yeah, we, we do the same. So the one language, one parent, I'm not sure if that's universally applicable. Um, if both parents are native speakers in whatever your native language is, then why not keep it that way? It's been working for our kids so far, so I'm I'm happy with it. Just... Yeah, I encourage you, if you have kids out there and you live outside of your language zone, I encourage you, keep that second language alive. You're, it'll be a tough fight with the kids for many years, but as they grow up, they will learn to appreciate it. Aaron, you, you've been known around the cross-cultural field now for, well, I want to say, two, three years, specifically for a book you wrote, The Culture Map, which has been all over the place if you if you follow this industry if you're interested in crossing cultures you must have come across the book by Aaron Meyer how how did you get into um, writing this book I know you you do research work and you teach at, at NCIAT University so what triggered the book Right. So I've been conducting research and teaching in the field of cross-cultural management really just about ever since I've been working. And I originally became interested in this field when years ago I was in my first job and I, I took this trip to Japan. Uh, I was just taking a, my one of my first business trips and I gave a, a presentation to a small group of Japanese. And after I gave the presentation, I asked the group if there were any questions, and no one raised their hand. So I went to sit down, and my Japanese colleague then said to me, Aaron, I think there were some questions. Do you mind if I try? So he then stood up and he said to the group, you know, Aaron Meyer has just spoken with you. Do you have any questions? And no one raised their hand. But he looked at them very carefully then, and as he studied them, he started to focus on one person in the audience and he said, do you have a question? And that person said, oh yes, thank you. And then he did it again, he looked at the audience, do you have a question? And the person said, yes. And I couldn't figure out how did he know that they had questions? So I asked him, you know, how did, how did you figure that out? And he said, well, it had to do with how bright their eyes were. And I thought, wow, you know, for me coming from Minnesota like I do, that's really difficult. But then he clarified and he said, you know, Aaron, in Japan, we don't make as much direct eye contact as you do in the, in the U.S. or in the West. So when you ask the group if there were any questions, most of them are not looking at you directly. They're looking somewhere else. But I noticed that someone was looking right at you, which indicates that they'd be happy to have you call on them if you'd like to. And then I gave another presentation the next day. And again, I asked if there were any questions. Again, no one raised their hand. But this time I thought I would just try. And I did what he suggested. 
I looked very carefully at the audience and I saw right away that he was right that most people in the room were not looking at me in my eyes they were looking somewhere else and he was right that one person in the room was really looking right at me and I I kind of gestured to that person and they asked a very important question so that was a very important moment in my in my life because I, I started to see how these very subtle complex cultural differences could really impact your effectiveness and I started to wonder if there wasn't some kind of method that could be developed that would help people to better decode these cultural differences and that's what got me started on this path of trying to understand how cultural differences were impacting globalizing organizations. Mm. So is, is that was often referred to as, as reading the room or reading through the silence in the room in, in Japan or in other Asian cultures? That's right. So they have that. My MBA, my uh, Japanese MBA students always talk with me about that. This expression, kuki yomenai, mm -hmm. which means someone who's unable to read the air or someone who's unable to read the atmosphere. They shorten the word to KY. And in that situation, I was clearly KY. And <laughs> that just was my hope that I thought, gosh, you know, we're also KY when we're working internationally. And isn't there something that we could do that uh, would help people to be a little bit uh, more perceptive? And that's what I try to do with the culture map, to help people develop a little bit less cluelessness. So you, you developed an, an assessment tool, basically, and around that assessment tool, a, a, a debrief or an, a self-analysis, right? Um, how, What's the methodology behind that? Because those in the cross-cultural field, they may be familiar with um, the foundational pieces that were developed by Holstead and Trompenars and similar, so or, or Edward Hall. So, how would you describe your assessment, and how does it different, differentiate itself from the work that's been done in the past? Right. So, my my framework builds on that academic work that's been done. So it builds on Hofstede and it builds on Trompenars and on Hall. But what I've done with my work is try to focus in, well, Hofstede focused on uh, value systems in societies and I focus more on behaviors in business. So I've tried to focus really practically on You know, just as you're going throughout your day, what types of things you need to do to get your work done and how those things differ in different parts of the world. So my framework looks at things like how we make decisions differently in different parts of the world, how we build trust differently in different countries, and then I help people to plot out how those behaviors differ when you bring two countries together, whatever those countries might be. Mm -hmm. And we, we've seen, and, and um, your tool is a perfect example for this, in the cross-cultural, intercultural field, we've seen um, tools like this geared more towards practical application and less um, academic theory. And no, no disrespect to to the great foundational work of of, of Hofstede and the others. But now, as this field has matured and has been more widely accepted in the business world outside of academia, it seems there is more practical application to it. Would you agree? Well, yes, and I think the most important thing to recognize is that when we're working internationally, culture impacts us all the time, but often we don't even realize it's impacting us. 
And a, a, one example of this, uh, I was working with a client in Indonesia a few days ago, and he said, you know, Aaron, when I'm working with Americans, one thing I notice is that they're always putting everything that we decide in writing. And he said, you know, in my culture, if we have a telephone call and we make some decisions verbally, that would be enough for me. And then if you get off of the phone and you put everything into writing that we've decided and you send that email to me, that's a clear signal to me that you don't trust me. Mm -hmm. So that's very important because you might have that interaction. You put something in writing, you send it off. You never know that culture has impacted you. You just notice later on that this guy doesn't seem to be very receptive. So I, I hope uh, with this work to get people to recognize all of the subtle and, as you said, practical ways that culture may impact our effectiveness so that we can make subtle changes or dramatic changes mm-hmm. in order to improve our effectiveness. Now, now here's where oftentimes the rubber hits the road. We, we can understand these concepts um, in theory, we can read about it and say, yep, that makes sense, and yes, I should probably do that. Um, when it comes to actually implementing change for oneself, that's when some people start struggling because, well, change is not always easy, and certain behaviors that we have been brought up with or that are deeply ingrained in our persona, it's hard to to adjust those. What do you recommend to people that are crossing cultures for business or personal reasons how do you still feel comfortable in trying on these different behaviors well i have this expression that i that i love which is the idea of authentic flexibility so often you know people will say to me you know aaron um, if I if I start using these behaviors that are not natural to me, then I believe I lose my authenticity as a leader and therefore I lose my strength. But instead, I would like to suggest that the most successful global leaders have a very strong sense of who they are and what they do best. And let's say that's like their left foot. That's their authentic foot. But on the other hand, they're working with their right foot to always learn um, how to get the best results with whichever population or country they're working with at that time. That's their flexible foot. And if you develop both of those, like you have this clear sense of who I am, yet I've also learned to adapt my style to the culture that I'm working with, then I find that people can be highly successful. And of course, as you said, this is not something that you can develop in an hour or in a day, but it is something that we can work on every day. And the more that we work on it, the better we can get at it. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little bit like playing basketball. When you pivot, you have one foot firmly grounded and the other one, well, in, in star shape going around and you you figure out which direction you want to pass the ball to next and, and, and one is flexible, the other one's strong and firm, right? Well, that's right. And I think a really clear example of this is just um, this very popular term, leadership. So what it means to be a good leader is so different from one country to another. And you can get to be a really good leader in your country, uh, but then when you start working leading in another country, it might not work so well anymore. I've done this work with Heineken. So Heineken, I think, is a great example because in the Netherlands, when the Netherlands is one of the most egalitarian populations in the world, as you know. And yep. in the Netherlands, children learn from a very young age that the teacher in the classroom 
is just a facilitator. Uh, and later on, they learn in work and the business that the boss is an equal. And they learn you can challenge the authority figure. They learn that you know everyone's opinion uh, kind of has equal weight. And Heineken, a few years ago, purchased this huge office in Monterey, Mexico. And now when I work with them, I have all of these first Dutch people managing Mexicans and also Mexicans managing Dutch people. And I have these Mexican managers who have learned to show a lot more deference and respect to the authority figure. And the Mexican managers would say to me, you know, Aaron, managing Dutch people is absolutely incredible because they do not care at all that I'm the boss. So I go into these meetings, I'm trying to roll out my strategy and my team is contradicting me, they're challenging me. Sometimes I just wanna get down on my knees and plead with them, you know, please don't forget that I'm the boss. So I do think that that's very challenging. Of course, you know, in today's global world, it's no longer enough to know how to manage the Dutch way or the Mexican way or the German way or the American way. But I also have found that that Mexican manager, if he really focuses on learning how to lead in a Dutch way, after several years, he can become very good at it. And then that will help him not just lead more effectively in the Netherlands, but perhaps also in other countries like Sweden or Denmark. And then maybe he goes to China next and he has to learn how to do it in the other direction. So that is global leadership from my perspective. Um, what I particularly liked about your book, um, among many other things, but you you always make it a point to when you compare different behavioral standards in, in different cultures to not forget the perspective the, uh, in, in relation to the culture. You can say that um, from, from a U.S. perspective or from a North American perspective that the French are um, very relaxed around time or that they are very, very, very direct in communicating compared to um, to the U.S., whereas somebody from, let's say, Japan or India may have a very different view of French behavior than somebody from the U.S., so the the matter of perspective is really important as we look to compare different behavioral norms, right? Right. Well, I think that's the key principle in understanding cultural differences in globalizing organizations, which is that our perception of what a culture is like is distinctly uh, linked to what what perspective we're coming from. So you gave an example a moment ago about time orientation. I'll give you another example that struck me a, a while ago when I was doing some research on the concept of hierarchy. Uh, so when I work with Americans or with British or Scandinavians or even with Germans who are working in France, they talk a lot about how hierarchical the French are. I interviewed one Chinese woman who was working here in Paris with Hermes, and in the interview she said, you know, it's amazing that the French are so egalitarian. She said, <laughs> you know, they really believe at a deep level that we are all totally equal, whether you are the chairman or whether you are the person sweeping the floors. And she said, and in comparison to Hong Kong, where we're always focused on, you know, who is at what level and how we, be, uh, how we behave to that, that person, it's amazing moving here. When you interact with your... No point in talking about what the French are like if you're managing a global team. 
I think we lost you there for a couple of seconds, Aaron, um, which is okay. I think the, the answer came across. Um, when when you are um, in your day-to-day -day routine in, in, in Paris now, Paris being a, a very, well, liberal, um, open-minded, and diverse place to live in France, um, which you probably won't find the same type of mindset out in the country when you go into more well remote places of France and I think the same is true for most countries around the world so when we talk about national behavioral preferences we also want to account for the in-country differences right so how do you how do you reconcile that when you look at just national uh, norms that you can find in in, a, in an assessment like yours? Right. So I look at national cultural differences, but the framework can apply at all different levels. And uh, of course, we see wide varieties from one part of a country to another. The the biggest examples of that are India and Brazil, which have the the strongest regional differences in the world. But we also could see, you know, even within one one city, that generational differences, for example, are very strong. We see that most uh, strikingly in countries like Poland or the Czech Republic. So what I encourage people to think about with the framework is, you know, not just where does every little country fall, which can help us get an orientation, but also recognizing that the framework could be applied even to a population who all comes from the same country. And I have had people who have monocultural teams who have used my assessment tool to map out individual personalities, even when everyone comes from the same country. So what I look at is how to define a, a culture but that culture is not always the national culture. Mm. Great. So, um, from your personal experience, when you when you left the United States for the first time, um, and and I guess went to was it Asia, you you were rather unexperienced, I would assume, as most people are when they first leave their their native. Uh, Territory when they they are like fish taken out of their native pond and put into a different water. Um, would you be okay with sharing some some fool moments you had when you when you first crossed cultures? Was it right? So the first time that I lived outside of the U.S. actually was in France. So I lived in France for a year when I was in uh, when I was twenty, and then after my my next big move was uh, moving to Africa. I lived in Botswana. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Botswana twenty years ago, or twenty five years ago maybe. <laughs> um, so let's see. <laughs> I didn't know really anything, and you know I'll just throw out a couple of things there, uh, just things to think about. But earlier I was talking about how much deference or respect you show to an authority figure. So I was a teacher in a, in a, a high school in Botswana for two years. It was one of my first jobs out of university. And it was very interesting for me to see uh, the expectation on the children's part uh, that I be a very strict disciplinarian with my, my students, which was so different than the way that I had been raised. And I had a really strong dilemma about whether to take on uh, the style of working there or whether to, uh, whether to uh, try to pull the class to accept my style. And I, uh, I, slowly I managed to develop something that was kind of in between, which I guess is the, uh, the goal. 
uh, of all of us to both kind of try to figure out what works from each side, but it was a painful two years. Painful in which respect? Well, it was painful as far as having completely unruly classrooms who used to try to, who used, actually they used to beg me to beat the students. That was the discussion that we used to have. And I know that word sounds very strong in a Western context. Uh, what it meant in Botswana was to hit the children with a, they had these like little sticks. So, I mean, you know, back like they used to do in our grandparents' age, perhaps <laughs> in our countries too, but it was so against my, uh, everything that I'd learned, I just couldn't bring myself to, to use this method. So, <laughs> wow, so you had to practice authentic flexibility for yourself, right? That's right. My first, my first challenge. Mm. So, uh, what would you recommend? One, one big nugget um, that you would would give to somebody who is about to embark on a foreign assignment, maybe for the first time or for the first time to a new culture that they haven't been to. What's what's the one or two things that you would like to pack for them in their carry on? Well, the first thing that I would like to just get people to think about is that most people, I believe, rely on stereotypes when they first start working abroad. And the, the problem with stereotypes is not that they are inaccurate, but that they are incomplete. And a stereotype gives a, a single narrative about what a culture is like. And in reality, of course, culture is both complex and contradictory. So if we focus on that single narrative, we'll likely fall into all sorts of traps. So one example that I like to give about that is working with a, a French manager who moved to the US and the French have a stereotype of Americans as being extremely explicit, which is of course accurate in comparison to the French culture. The French are much more implicit And, but if you have that single narrative in mind, you will fall into a big trap because the French are also much more direct with negative feedback than the American culture where Americans are taught to wrap three positives around every negative and catch people doing things right, which is very uncommon in the French culture where we tend to give positive feedback much more implicitly. So then I have this French, French woman who is being managed by an American boss and the American boss thinks that he's told her You know, that her behavior is inappropriate and ineffective. And then he gets frustrated that she's not making changes. But she leaves those same meetings thinking, wow, you know, this is the best, best feedback I've ever received because she listens to the wrong part. So here you can see someone who's really fallen into a trap of feeling comfortable because of a stereotype instead of searching to understand the complexity. So my advice is to look for those underpinning complexities. And that's what I, I try to do with my culture map framework is help people to map out how those contradictions arise when they're working internationally. Nice. Thank you. So where do people, if they haven't come across your book yet or, or your work, where do people find you? Where, where do people find the assessment or the book or your work? Well, the best thing to go to do is to go to my website where you'll find everything together, erinmeyer.com, and I, I post readings there frequently, so anyone who's interested can find information there. Okay. We'll certainly post the link to your website in the show notes. Um, I'm sure the book is available not only at the one online retail that starts with an A. I'm sure there are others out there that sell it as well. Um, how do people connect with you using social media? What's your preferred mode of communication around social media? 
I'm on Twitter, Aaron Meyer in Siad. And we'll make sure to post that as well. Um, make sure to follow Erin. She shares quite a depth of information using Twitter. And there's a lot and a lot of articles on her website in the blog section. And her one of her articles for Harvard Business Review was just um, ranked, or I, I don't know if it was ranked. I think it was just the statistics of Harvard Business Review. It turned out that one of Aaron's articles was one of the most read in the year 2015. So congratulations for that. Well deserved. Thanks, Christian. That was fun. It was really a pleasure to talk with you today. You have a great afternoon in Paris, and the rest of you listeners, wherever you are, which time zone you're in, have a wonderful rest of the day. Erin, thanks so much for being on the program. It was a pleasure. I hope to have you on this program again in the future, and I look forward to staying in touch with you, and you will get probably a handful of new followers after this. Okay, I look forward to it. Thank you. Erin Meyer, isn't she amazing? You need to check out her book. If you haven't read the book yet, it's called The Culture Map. I'm going to post the link to Amazon on the website in the show notes. Yes, there are other stores out there. You'll figure it out for yourself, whether you want to buy it at Amazon or somewhere else. The Culture Map has also got an assessment tool that you want to look into. I'll post the links to that as well in the show notes. Do check this out if you are not familiar with her work. Um, and remember, stereotypes can be misleading because they're incomplete. You may want to check it out. I'm going to post that link to the FITT blog post in the show notes as well. Um, I wrote a full-blown story about the power of collaboration and masterminding, especially in a cross-cultural context. So I encourage you to check that out. That's it for episode seven. Make sure you friend us on Facebook, The Culture Guy. Also, find us on the web, theculturemastery.com is the name of the company. There's a blog, you may want to read it. Follow us on Twitter, at Culture Mastery, or at my personal Twitter account, which is at Hoeferle, H-O-E-F-E-R-L-E. And please do send me emails, send me your feedback like you have been doing in the past. Suggest guests for the future on the program, and we'll be happy to have a conversation with them and learn from their experiences in crossing cultures. With that, Christian is out, and I'll talk to you again next time.